Welcome to Soccer 101, the podcast where we delve into and investigate a particular topic relating to that beautiful game we all love. Today, we're looking at the idea of pressing in soccer. What does it mean? When did it come into fashion among soccer tacticians? Who does it well? Who does it badly? And why is that player called Cristiano Ronaldo? And what does its future hold in the game? My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, Taylor Rockwell. Hey, buddy. How you doing? I'm doing very well, sir. Joe Lowry, how are you? I'm quite well, Ryan Bailey. Oh, music to my ears, as is the dulcet tones of Graham Ruthven. Hello, Ryan. I fear this is the episode I'm going to be exposed as, as Steve, Bruce, uh, Steve Bruce calls himself, <laughs> a tactically inept cabbage head. But we've got Joe, tactical mastermind Lowry, with us today, so he'll, he'll keep us right. So we've got a few ends of the uh, tactical spectrum, the cabbage right up to whatever Joe is. Then. Yeah, I don't know what at the, what's at the other end of a cabbage spectrum, but it's Joe. <laughs> I'm trying to think. In like Eastern European foods, it would maybe be sausage. <laughs> That's just so weird. <laughs> way to start this podcast. Yes, we've got yes, Jess, Joe, your sausage. <laughs> you know what? I'm weirdly okay with that. Sausage is a good food. Sausage is a good food. A good start to this podcast, gents. Um, episode 27 of Soccer 101 on June 10th, 2020, was also on this topic. It was called What is Pressing? And it also covered Gagan Pressing. That episode, Taylor, was hosted by Daryl. It was. It was. And it's a wonderful episode. I would encourage people to go listen to it. Uh, and it has been a year uh, this week since we lost our friend Daryl Grove. When we first started Soccer 101, uh, it was meant to be a way to explain like the basics of soccer in a way that was accessible to beginners, but still informative to longstanding fans of the game, sort of trying to split that difference. And of course, to have fun, hence coming up with random fantasy 11s like the Parks and Rec one. Um we did have to change that up when Daryl's health worsened and scheduling got a lot harder. And so we started doing sort of individual episodes. I would do one one week, he would do on the next. And Daryl Ever, the defender, had always been interested in pressing the idea behind it, where it came from, where it could go from there. So he recorded a solo episode on that one, as Ryan said, episode 27. My style, I would say, is verbose, if I'm being kind. His style was more to the point, and his episode on pressing was very much that. And it's great. It also makes me really sad that he and I never got to have that kind of spirited back and forth about the origins of pressing and different variations and probably arguing over like semantics of terms. That was always a good time. So in an homage to that episode, since it has been a year, I'm excited to have a longer discussion about pressing with uh, three men who have made going to get a little emotional, who have made uh, that last year much more manageable and have made me happy to keep doing the show and the Total Soccer Show, uh, even in moments when it felt like it was going to be too difficult to do so. Uh, So. Thank you to Daryl for being who he was, who he will always be. Thank you to you three for being who you are. Uh, and now, with the emotional part done, uh, let's get way into the weeds on a nerdy topic like pressing and have some fun with it, as Daryl would have wanted. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you, uh, Taylor. Kind yeah, words there. You. Yeah, that was lovely. You should go back and listen to Daryl's episode, by the way, in the feed if you haven't listened to it. He does a lot of Star Wars references in that. I've never seen <laughs> Star Wars, but I still enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> um, a quote from Harry Redknapp, uh, Graham. <laughs> Great transition, Ryan. We're kicking, off, we're kicking off an episode of about pressing and tactics with a high red net quote. Uh, All this stuff about pressing is nonsense. It's nothing new. All teams who are successful have to work hard. Uh, Hang on, Graham, was this quote you or was it Harry Redknapp? (laughs) I'm not sure if I should should take that as an insult, Ryan. I don't know if I'm quite on the the, the Harry Redknapp end of the the spectrum yet, but um, 
I look. I kind of not not to the extent of high red nap, but I kind of understand what he's talking about. You know, pressing has been. I think we're going to go into the the history and the origins of pressing, but it has been around in the sport for a long time. You know, we would previously, when I was a kid, we would call it, I guess, closing down. That's a very um, crude way of of re- referencing it, but it has been part of the sport, and it's definitely. People have become more aware of it. It's certainly one of those terms. I probably overuse it, to be honest, slightly overuse it. Um, mm. So I, I can kind of understand where higher red naps coming from. Okay. Not many people have said that, I suppose, in history. But uh, <laughs> f- thank you for that, Graham. Uh, Joe, I'm going to hand it to you to actually give us the basics here. What does pressing mean? What does it mean in its essence? Okay, so pressing as a definition, I think pressing is when the defending team pressures the opposition while they're in possession, while the opposition is in possession. It's a really logical term, right? It just comes from literally the word pressing. Pressing and pressure very interrelated in that respect. Pressing happens when the team without the ball applies pressure on the team with the ball in some sort of organized way. And I think that is the distinction between that Harry Redknapp quote in his discussion about like teams always have to work hard or whatever. You know, teams do have to work hard, but pressing, there's a tactical, team-wide, unified element behind it, and it usually is pre-planned in some respect. It can be more or less pre-planned depending on the coach and depending on the situation, but there is usually some idea and motivation behind it. So an individual can press, Ryan, as you referenced in your introduction, or cannot press, as you mentioned in your introduction, <laughs> and that can be effective. But it's much more effective when you're pressing as a team and pressing as a unit because at that point you can actually limit spaces and decide where you want to funnel the ball and how you're going to pressure as a group and keep that tight shape that makes it really challenging for the opposition to play through you. So that's some of the the very basics of pressing and the definition of it. Most often we think of it as a high press, but you can press in other spots as well. Uh, but that's, that's kind of my very uh, elementary pressing 101 spiel. Well, let's go into those different kinds of press. And Taylor, why don't you take this one? Uh, Joe just mentioned high press. Um, and, you know, there's, there's like a midfield press, sometimes called a mid-block. Maybe, oh, oh, maybe those terms are conflated. What kind of presses are there exactly, Taylor? I mean, I think, yeah, you can do the, the full pitch press where you are just trying to put everybody under pressure everywhere on the pitch. That requires a lot of running and can be a little bit uh, more challenging. So I think what you do tend to get is more dedicated pressing in certain areas or based on certain incidents in the game. So that might be losing possession. That might be like opponent's first touch. That might be a certain player getting the ball uh, who is maybe going to be the most vulnerable on it. Then you press them and that can be high up the pitch where you're sort of stepping everybody up so that your defenders are at mid- midfield and everybody's even further forward. You're making the field that much harder to play out of. Could be in the middle of the pitch if you want to kind of let the ball progress so you don't have to deal with late arriving runs or something like that. Or you could do it deeper but the difference would be that like in a low block in my mind or a mid block, you're, you're sort of standing off. It's more about sort of blocking options, blocking passing lanes and frustrating the opponent. The pressing aspect would be that once they get into the final third, that the defensive team then is sending those numbers. They are kind of swarming. They are making the opposition uncomfortable. And Graham, there's a kind of term we hear a lot mentioned by managers like Jurgen Klopp, by Pep Guardiola, uh, Marcelo Bielsa, and also Mauricio Pochettino. And I think it's Klopp, maybe it's Guardiola too, who mm-hmm. uh, has kind of explained it as winning the ball back within, I think it's six seconds, is mm-hmm. the is the kind of mantra they try to do. It's, it's all about trying to maybe force a mistake. And those five yeah. to six seconds when um, a team regains possession is when they're most vulnerable, according to those principles. 
Yeah, and, and what you referenced there, that the six-second rule, um, I'm not sure if that's actually what it's called, but that that was uh, Pep Guardiola's Barcelona team. And when I was speaking there about the pressing being a big part of the zeitgeist, for me, anyway, maybe I'm wrong about this, but that Guardiola, that great Barcelona team, really brought pressing to the masses, even though there are countless examples of it existing before then. Before then, they took it to the extreme, where, as you mentioned, Guardiola would demand that his players would win the ball back from the opposition within six seconds. And the, the levels of fitness, this is where I think the the big difference was and where we had a, a real advance advancement in pressing was the levels of, of fitness and coaching that it took to pull that off was incredible because of course it's not just about getting one player getting to the ball first in the way that Guardiola's teams do it. It's about having the cohesion and the coordination behind that initial the person who leads the press to actually win back the ball because of course a professional footballer can, well, any self-respecting professional footballer should be able to pass around one player leading leading the press. It's the it's the barrier up behind it that will tend to kind of win the ball back, and and that's Guardiola really set the standard from that. You mentioned Geg and Press, and uh, Klopp's kind of got his his own version of that. Taking an excerpt from the, the Economic Times when I was look, doing my research on this, Geg and Press is in its essence uh, to Geg and Press is to set and play micro events in which one of of your players lose the ball um, others can recover it at the quickest possible time to attack so it's, it's quite similar to, to Guardiola's system and that has really set to use that word against the zeitgeist across the sport you know Liverpool playing this way Bayern Munich who obviously Guardiola was at and, and kind of instilled a lot of principles there they play in this way City playing this way Bielsa's Leeds United as well they're, they're not quite as um they're not quite the same. They don't adopt the same strategy, but there are similarities in Bielsa's teachings as well. And so you see that a lot at the elite level of the game at the moment. And I want to add, guys, just really quick, a few reasons why this happens, right? Teams don't just press because it's fun or press because they've randomly decided to do so. Whether we're talking about a high press or pressing up out of a lower defensive shape that Taylor mentioned earlier, or whether we're talking about gegenpressing, counterpressing, like Graham was just talking about. This stuff happens for a reason. There's there's actual purpose and motivation behind it. I've got three quick reasons. If you press, that means the team in possession has less time to think and less time to execute. You're getting them off their game, and that's huge in soccer, right? The second thing, if you press, you can win the ball, which means the other team won't have it, and if you don't have the ball, you can't score. That's something that Pep Guardiola and, and his his coaching disciples and, and former players obsess about, right? And then the third thing, if you press and you win the ball, you're probably attacking against a scattered defense. And Ryan, you mentioned this earlier. When you attack against a team, uh, when, when you counter-press or when you press at all and they're, they're in their own possession shape, they're not ready to defend. That's the moment where they're most vulnerable, and those are great moments to attack. So when you press, the other team doesn't have as much time to think, they, they can't score, and your chances of scoring have increased. So those are some of the reasons why we're even talking about this at all and why pressing exists in the first place. I, I also think that a high press, if we're talking about a high press specifically, can can be used to mask some of your own team's defensive issues. So obviously mm-hmm. it takes the, the onus away from the defenders to defend and instead, instead puts it on the team as a whole. And I think that was part of Guardiola's thinking towards the end of his time at Barcelona teams would figure out ways to bypass that press it would maybe involve being a little bit more direct which is something um, there's a certain level of football where for instance at Sterling Albion I don't think I've seen any teams at that level 
conduct a high press effectively because the ball goes from one end to the other very quickly and so that it kind of bypasses that. At the elite level, it's possible to borrow some of that to bypass the high press and we saw that towards the end of, of Guardiola's time and we saw that it, that Barcelona defence could be quite weak and that was part of the reason why they would press so high up so as to keep the ball away from that defence. It, it, it has an attacking um, benefit and a defensive benefit. And well, I think... What we're all like sort of speaking to and has been my favorite part in doing the research for this show is that I think similar to Rednab, I just thought of pressing is like, yeah, you're putting pressure on people. You're kind of running at them. You're making them make a decision. And in that way, Rednap is correct. But uh, I would I would draw the comparison to uh, George Costanza from Seinfeld has like with the opening line about how like there's been no real advances in toilet paper since toilet paper was invented. And the woman he's with is like, oh, that's interesting. And everybody else he says that to is like, yes, there have. There have been tons of them. And I think I'm pointing to that to say, like, Redknapp is right that pressing has always been part of football for at least the last 40 years or so. But it's how nuanced it has become and how different it has become that is so surprising to me. Because even looking at Pep and Klopp, there are a ton of similarities. But to what has already been said, Pep's teams are about winning the ball back so that they can have possession. They get it as quickly as they can to have possession because that's how they're defending with possession. With Klopp's teams, it's effectively he's trying to make the press the number 10. That he is trying to, by so aggressively pressing so high up the pitch and forcing turnovers in advantageous positions, as Joe referenced, like it, it allows you to then have more people who can attack really swiftly. And if your entire game plan is built on win the ball back and then go at the team as fast as you can, you don't need a playmaker because because everybody is sort of functioning as a playmaker or the system is functioning as the playmaker. The players are creating chances from that system. So it's just really fascinating to me the different ways you can sort of change how you're pressing, where you're pressing, who you might be pressing to have different results and different outcomes. And it's so much more like nuanced than I expected it to be. It is nuanced, Taylor. And can you speak a little bit to um, when teams press? Like, for example, does Bielsa's lead press for 90 minutes do they switch it on and off when as appropriate is there a mm-hmm. signal does is there a dog whistle that goes off and they start pressing uh, i hesitate to say dog whistle uh but yeah, that, that term's tainted i apologize is there a whistle <laughs> i should say although i guess you are just meaning literally a dog whistle and maybe that would work i don't know how good the hearing is for the leeds players <laughs> but yeah uh, i i think it, again it it can it can vary and it probably varies based on phases of the game it's weird to me how if we had had this conversation three years ago Pochettino would very much be involved in the conversation, less so these days with PSG, but he's a manager who I think of as having his teams engage in a press at different parts of the pitch at different times in the game. And I think you can have it that way of we're going to sit off a little bit and we're going to let the opponent get comfortable and then we're going to blitz them again. I think you can have teams that start very aggressively and try to win the ball back the entire time, or maybe it is those opening six seconds. But then you can also try to make sure that your opponent is fu- or you can funnel them into a player who can't pass out or is more likely to kick long and then you reestablish possession further back or you put them under pressure with a heavy touch because you know they're going to take that if you put them under pressure so it can be very much specific to the opponent i think broadly speaking uh, coaches default to something like when they cross midfield or when they get possession to go after them for those first six seconds. Those seem to be the ones that are easiest to sort of get everybody behind and get everybody on the same page as quickly as possible. And okay. and I think, Taylor, you're, or, or, and even go back to your original question, Ryan, about how do these teams know when to go and know when to press. There is this idea of pressing triggers. And that's, that's a kind of, it's a tactical buzzword, but it is a useful term. 
when when we're talking about pressing triggers, think about counterpressing as an example of a pressing trigger. In that situation, the trigger, the cue, uh, the, the signal to start the press is your own team losing possession. And other times, they're a little bit harder to spot. It might be a back pass. It might be the ball arriving at an opponent who is weak on that particular side of the field or, or is weak with one foot you know, in a way that you can pinpoint and actually exploit. So it is not totally random and it is not players just memorizing we're going to press in the first minute the eighth minute the 27th minute and then we're going to do it three more times in the second half it is situational but there are pre-planned aspects of it as well when we're talking about pressing and pressing triggers and on that note pressing triggers there's another term i've come across taylor pressing traps uh is that just when you're trying to catch mice (laughs) That is one way to do it, and it's just you get the entire Liverpool team running around your kitchen and you see what happens. But the other way you could do it, uh, a national team that comes to mind we talked about previously is doing this is Colombia, that they're always very good about setting traps, and they want you to play into certain areas of the pitch because oftentimes that allows them to win the ball back with numbers, and for Colombia, numbers with James Rodriguez staying in open spots so that as soon as you win the ball, you can find him. And now uh, to the to Joe's idea of sort of catching the opponent in a state of transition and being particularly vulnerable, now they have to scramble to first get into defensive position, but also worry about a threat in the form of James Rodriguez, who would probably be their first priority to defend. But if you're scrambling, maybe he loses, gets lost in the shuffle, and that's how he's able to find those spaces. So it's basically baiting your opponent into playing into a certain part of the field or to a certain player that you can then pounce upon, force that turnover, and then capitalize. Ah, so it's the Tom Hardy, that's a trap gif in uh, in soccer form. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, kind of, yeah. Especially because I think there end up being a bunch of people on uh, motorcycles after that. So yeah, like then they come at you hard and fast. <laughs> Sounds mad to me. Um, hmm. well, I'd like to take a quick break, but before we do, there's one more piece of terminology, Graham. Um, when we talk about a player who is press resistant, mm-hmm. uh, does that literally mean you can't press them because they're too good with the ball? Um, yes, in essence. Any, anyone who isn't Fred, I guess. Um, <laughs> Oh, but seriously, Fred, Fred is the, the least pressed resistant player I can think of at this moment. Um, you, and you, that, you root for Scotland, right? You want to make that statement, Scotland fan? Um, we've got Billy Gilmore, <laughs> excuse me, who I would consider to be one of the most press resistant players going. So Get him, Graham. you consider that. <laughs> so Graham, what makes him press resistant then? So I, I guess an instant control of the ball will always help. Someone whose first touch is, is always on point means that they will, they'll be in the position that they, they need to be in to either dribble past an opponent or get another uh, another pass away so that they can bypass that high press. And um, yeah, it's becoming an increasingly important part of, of the game. I think of players like um, Jorginho is very um, press resistant. He's, he's always yeah. pretty good in that situation. I, I guess vision is also important, you know, where you have an appreciation of what's around you at any given time so that you know, you know, whether it is time to play back to the goalkeeper or whether a, a pass out to the fullback. It tends to be a term that's talked about with regards to central midfielders, I always feel, because that, that is where a lot of, a lot of, um, you know, players will face a press, will be in the centre of the pitch, but it can also it also applies to central defenders, obviously, if they're facing a, a high press. And um, yeah, as I say, it's increasingly becoming an important part of the game to have those players. I guess it's always been important, but it, it feels like it gets talked about a lot more now. I, I don't want to put Graham on the spot with this one, so I'll ask the group. Are there specific players that come to mind when you think of a person who is press resistant, especially a midfielder who's press resistant? Tony I think like a lot of Man City players for me. Tony Cross for me. 
Yeah, uh, yeah and some other components of that Madrid midfield too, right? Luka Modric, Calvin Phillips, the other one. Uh, yeah, Kovacic as well. Like, it, it, I agree with you, Graham. It is a lot of central players because those players tend to be the ones who are under the most pressure the most often. So Modric, Kovacic, Tony Kroos is a great one, Ryan. Billy Gilmore is a great example, Graham. I'm totally with you. I think he is exceptionally press resistant. It's technical players, right? But it's also aggressive players and players who are athletic and can stride forward um, after they've beaten the press and absorbed or turned away from the pressure. You want someone who can then take advantage of the gap that's been created. So there's this open space now that just wasn't there before. And having players with an engine to them. Uh, I think about center backs in this regard. Dio Opamecano is a great one right now for Bayern Munich to watch. Uh, he's a guy who can turn away from pressure and then stride forward or recover the ball and stride forward. And as those spaces open up, you want players who are technical but also physically capable of taking advantage of that open space. Excellent stuff. Uh, I've just spotted some open space in which we should address the pressing matter of an ad break. We'll be back very shortly. Today's episode of Soccer 101 is brought to you by NetSuite. Time, Taylor, is of the essence when you run a business. And now is the time to make the switch to NetSuite by Oracle, the number one financial system. Because NetSuite gives you visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, e-commerce, and much, 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 much more. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. Did you know that, Taylor? Uh, I did not, but I do now. But I do know that uh, much like pressing, you got to be kind of quick in business. You got to be on the fly, able to adapt to an ever-changing environment. And NetSuite helps you do that uh, because you can automate your processes and close your books in no time. So no matter how big your business grows, you will still be able to deal with things as they come in a quick way, not a slow way. You're not sitting back and defending. There's no bunkering with NetSuite. It's always forward. That's right. No sitting back here. I'm going to be straight with you, Taylor, right? Mm -hmm. I I like having a business and being a part of a business but the book side of things it's not the most fun part you want to get it done quickly and efficiently and i think that's where netsuite comes in here failing to switch to netsuite taylor will leave you stuck trying to make sense of your books while your competitors sprint ahead i don't want them sprinting ahead like they're some fast pressing high pressing team taylor i I want to stay up with them and press with them i want to be press resistant with them that's what i want to be taylor Yeah, I think of it as like uh, killing Mbappe being the other businesses immediately makes me scared of all the other businesses. Uh, financing can also be a little bit scary, but there is special financing with NetSuite. They're offering a one-of-a-kind financing program only for those ready to switch today. You can head to netsuite.com slash soccer 101 right now. That's special financing at netsuite.com slash soccer 101. Ryan Bailey, one more time. What's that URL? I'm going to spell it out. N E T S U I. T-E dot com slash soccer 101. Head there today. How often do you get anxious when you're spelling it out that you're going to misspell it? Even with it spelled out right in front of you, I still get a little bit uh, anxious about it. Every time. Yep. All right. Well, I never get anxious about NetSuite. <laughs> one more time, netsuite.com slash soccer 101. Thank you very much to NetSuite for sponsoring today's episode. Soccer 101, we are back. Uh, we're going to talk about the history and go maybe back a few years to see uh, how pressing has developed in the game. But first, a question for you, Joe. Um, as a basketball fan, um, US sports fans will be aware of the term full court press. I don't know what that means. What does it mean? And is it relatable to soccer pressing? Yeah, no, it's it's very similar. Basketball and soccer share a ton of strategic pieces to their games. Full court pressing in basketball is... After you've scored a basket or after some sort of, they don't call this in basketball, but some sort of dead ball situation where the run of play has stopped. Again, I'm mixing my terminology here. But <laughs> let's say your team scores a basket, right? They, the other team has to inbound the ball. So they have to check the ball in from out of bounds on the end line 
to putting it back in play. It's like a goal kick, essentially. Uh, mm-hmm. it, those are moments where if you're full court pressing, you choose to go and step up and you can do it in a man to man kind of way. Most often, the way I've seen it is you do some sort of zone and you play like a two one two and you have two players up really close to the end line by the inbounder. Then you have some guy patrolling the middle and some guy, uh, two guys left then controlling closer to the half court line. And, and the idea is to suffocate them to win the ball back high up the court near your own basket to then create some quick basketball shooting chances i it just sounded like i don't actually watch basketball because i kept saying so many soccer things i do guys i promise and i I hope that's a fair representation of a full court press i think so i understand it a little more now thank you for that joe uh taylor i would like you now sir to regale us with the history of the press just just a, a, a quick like entire book real fast is that what we're doing Jonathan Wilson out, please. Yes, please. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So basically, uh, you can find lots of different influences on pressing because the idea of run at the opponent to make sure that they don't get to do whatever they want on the ball sort of is natural. It's a natural part of soccer. I think there's some key building blocks. The one that gets a lot of credit would be Austrian Ernst Happel. Uh, Uli Hess wrote a really good article for 442 about kind of the history of pressing and how it's evolved. Um, Here's a quote. In 1970, Hoppel guided Feyenoord to a stunning European Cup win with a system resting on two pillars, an offside trap, and a pressing game. Hoppel was associated so closely with the tactic that when he died, one Austrian newspaper wrote, quote, the pressing around his coffin was the way he'd always envisioned it, end quote. Uh, The person that he most inspired would be uh, Randis Michaels. I always go back and forth on how to pronounce that name, but that's what I'm going with for this time. Uh, the father of total football, though he, I think, publicly said he wished that he had been called the father of pressing football, brought it to the forefront with Ajax and then the Dutch national team in the 1974 World Cup. And that is remains one of my favorite uh, like old school World Cup videos you can find is that that Dutch team hunting in packs and just how almost comical it is where they have eight people running at the ball, but it's hunting in packs, forcing mistakes, playing very aggressive. Uh, the other, I would say, major sort of tactical evolution is Arrigo Saki in the 1980s with Milan and the idea of ball-oriented defending, which I did not realize didn't really exist prior to the 1980s, but it's the thing we see now that is basically how you play modern soccer, of you leave some people open in certain parts of the pitch to slide over and crowd the area where the ball is, so you're basically defending in relation to the ball, not defending in relation to the individual mark or uh, assignment you might have. So it basically means there's more fluidity in the way teams are playing, there's more shifting defensively, and that naturally invites more pressing and more aggressive pressing at that. Modern era, uh, I think Ralf Rangnick deserves a lot of credit for bringing it to Germany, who were probably the country that was most resistant to playing in the press. Pressure Another system. player in Germany who gets a ton of credit for that would be Jurgen Klopp and Gagan pressing, first with Mainz, then with Dortmund, uh, very successfully with Dortmund, uh, winning two seasons, and then Bayern Munich basically copied his plan implement it themselves, and now they're on the run that they're on. And obviously Pep as well gets a ton of credit for the way he utilized the press at Barcelona. So, Taylor, it sounds like we see a through line maybe from Renus Mikkels with the Dutch side um, having Johan yeah. Cruyff play for him, and Johan Cruyff takes some of that philosophy on, who passes yep. it on to Pep Guardiola. And and by all accounts, like Pep Guardiola would not have been the player he was if it weren't for Johan Cruyff, who needed a player who could control possession, who could read the field and be that sort of general. Pep was not the biggest guy, not the fastest guy, and I think had been written off at times by Barcelona board members. Shock of all shocks. But uh, I think Guardiola would say that kind of the belief in Cruyff and the idea of 
finding finding underutilized assets or finding players that are sort of not fitting the system and finding a way to make them fit is a big part of what he's done to be able to get the best out of players who maybe didn't seem like they would be up to the level, but now have proven their worth. So yeah, I think there is a pretty strong through line there. And then there's influences and it kind of always, you know, you have offshoots in different styles and different approaches in South America, uh, in Africa, even you get different variations on pressing. So lots of different styles to it, but that would be the probably most like common one that I saw. And it seems, Graham, that I think I mentioned these names earlier, your Pochies, your Klops, your Guardiolas, your Bielsas, they're the sort of managers who are credited with doing it well. Are they, are they, do they do it well or have they just brought it to the forefront and lots of other people do it too? Um, am I allowed to say both? I think they, a lot of them have brought it to the forefront. You know, Guardiola, as, as Taylor mentions there, and, and the, at the elite level, I think you have to credit him with a lot. Um, Klopp, you know, all the names that Taylor mentioned, but I, I still think Klopp and Guardiola, if you look at them now in 2021, are, are still doing it better than really anyone else. Uh, and, you know, Bielsa as well. How long has he been doing it? And I, I still think his Leeds team are, in that regard, better, better than most in the Premier League. So I, I still think they are... I think we're, we're seeing um, some t- tactical tweaking to how a high press works. So re- recently, to me anyway, uh, maybe this is just my awareness of, of this feature of, of a high press, but we're starting to see maybe midfielders leading high presses a little bit more. Um, I think Tangion Dumbele is, is arguably the best in European football at doing this. I think he's made a big difference for Tottenham under Nuno. He did it very well at the at the weekend against, who were they playing? Newcastle. Um, he performed that role very well and we're starting to see that a little bit more. So I, I anticipate that these guys will continue to have fresh interpretations. For instance, the way that Guardiola's City team play is very different to the way that his Barcelona team play and very different to the way that his Bayern Munich team play. So he is still kind of innovating and, and, and thinking of new ideas. And Joe, if those are the managers who do it well, is there anyone who doesn't press well? And I, I mentioned the name of a player at, at the top of the uh, at the top of the episode, as you referenced, there, Cristiano Ronaldo. Obviously, pressing requires a certain level of fitness from a player. Uh, is it is it something that a 36-year-old would struggle to do or is it more to do with Ronaldo being Ronaldo? Uh, I think it's a bit of both. It does require a lot of hard running and a lot of hard work. Uh, it, it also just requires motivation and desire to do that kind of thing. And I, a lot of the best players in the world just don't really, right? Messi, incredible, the best player ever to play this game. And he doesn't really press, right? Nobody asks him to press. I mean, in, in an ex- to an extent you do within certain situations, but he's never going to be running out there like Paul Ariola trying to close down the ball. It, it's just not going to happen. So it does sort of depend on the, the type of player. And if you can get those players to buy in as a manager and actually do that work, oh my goodness, you deserve some sort of medal because that is, that is an impressive accomplishment. As far as teams and maybe managers that don't press too well, the one that just came to mind for me is Mikel Arteta in Arsenal. They press a lot in the final third. They high press a lot. They have a pretty low success rate, at least this season, relative to other high pressing teams and teams that do that stuff uh, at a high frequency. So that is one name that that jumped to mind for me. You, you usually see teams with a lot of money and a lot of good players high pressing because they have the talent and quality to do that. And then as a result of that pressing to dominate possession. And so a lot of teams that are Lower quality won't step forward as much. There are some outliers there, but generally that's the rule. And it just so happens that because these teams have money and they have the best players, usually a lot of the high-pressing teams are a lot of the good teams, which means that generally speaking, most of the high-pressing teams do it pretty well. I think, I can't tell if, if 
I fully disagree with, with you guys or if I'm like thinking of more historical examples. But like as I understand it, pressing comes about because there is this natural talent imbalance that will happen in football. And the way to negate that is to basically get in people's faces. And it's why you have that high press in basketball is because you have to inbound it and get past a half court and then you have a shot clock and you can put them under pressure from start to finish. And so if you do have a very good point guard who can score from anywhere, if he's constantly getting harassed, it just makes it harder for him to get that shot off. And you can sort of bring that talent imbalance into more of a balance. And so I do think that there are examples where less heralded clubs sort of fully devote themselves to playing this style and they do cause problems. It's it's why Dortmund under Klopp, I think when he comes in there, they're mid to bottom of the table and not having much success. And he is sort of able to get everybody to buy in. I think part of that, for me at least, is because it's not uglier football, but I think there's a reason why it's called heavy metal. It's more brutal uh, in a lot of ways. It, to me, it's it's a lot more aggressive. It's a lot more hard running. You don't have as much of the tiki-taka with Barcelona because pressing there was a way to get possession back and then keep possession for 75% of the game. Whereas I think if you are just trying to like smash the opponent, go straight at goal and score... There are certain players who will like that style, and there are certain players who not, and you do have to kind of find that balance. Is, is Graham Potter's Brighton a good example of that, Taylor? I'm just yeah, looking th- through, so. through some statistics of last season. Um, they averaged the, the fourth highest um, presses per match in the Premier League last season, and obviously they are amongst teams like Chelsea, Liverpool, Leeds United, Man City, who have much greater natural talent than them, and that's how they address that talent yeah. imbalance that you were talking about. Well, in- Yeah, I, I think so. And I think, Taylor, there maybe needs to be some nuance here, right? Maybe I was speaking too generally um, last time around. There are teams that are at a talent deficit and that choose to use high pressing as their primary chance creation method. Klopp has that quote about, you know, the counter press or the press being the best creator, you know, better than yep. a number 10 or whatever. And, and in a sense, he's right. And teams like Southampton or teams like Brighton, although Brighton do try to use the ball and, and do some nice things with the ball as well. There are teams out there, though. Think about the New York Red Bulls in Major League Soccer, some of their best yep. years. Yes, they had talent, but they weren't spending as much as a lot of other teams in Major League Soccer. Yes, a lot of these teams, there's teams in La Liga, um, Athletic Bilbao, Ibar, that, that really press and don't have the money that Barca or, or Real Madrid or even Atletico Madrid have. And so they do use it as an equalizer and they use it as a way to create chances, contrasting those teams with Pep. And I think even Klopp has sort of crossed into this territory given the resources at his disposable, disposal, excuse me. <laughs> you pass over to that group of teams and they do have so much talent. And pressing is just another tactical tool that they can use rather than the tactical tool that helps them win games. So I think I feel much more educated on pressing. Thank you very much, gents. One more question from me about this. What does the future hold? I mean, it's something that's very prominent in the game at the moment, but if you think back to the, like, you know, 20 years ago, it wasn't so prominent and something that we've established has always been in the game, but will it always have this prominence? Is there a new fad or fashion in tactics, Joe, that you might see coming on the horizon? Are we all going to just sit deep from now on? I, I think we are going to see pressing stick around in one form or another. What that looks like exactly, I don't know. I can see a future 10 or 20 years from now, Ryan, when offensive teams are just tired of being pressed. They're sick of it, uh, and, and they realize that when the other team presses, the logical space to exploit it is in behind. And so mm. maybe we see teams starting to go more direct as a way to counteract teams pressing, which then takes us back. 15 or 20 years and soccer is cyclical. That's one thing that I, I really do believe is true about at least the on field stuff. 
we go through cycles of play and cycles of tactics. One thing catches on as a, as a way to beat a high press and everybody starts doing it. And then the counteracting measure to that tactic is then a different one. And it goes around in a circle over and over again. So I do think we could see teams sitting deeper and, and playing long and playing on the break to try to avoid being pressed. Even still, there's going to be counter-pressing moments and there's going to be a lot of these high-intensity, aggressive opportunities. And as fitness continues to improve more and more and as teams just get smarter and, and better, as Graham kind of talked about earlier, I think we're going to see this tactic still. It just might look slightly different depending on the era. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And especially the idea that like history repeats itself football is cyclical. And I think what happens is you get advances like we've talked about with fitness and coaching and even data that that sort of help you understand better how to press, where to press, who's doing it well, who's not running enough. You get all that information. It makes it easier to fine tune. But simultaneously, in that cyclical cyclical nature, you also get actual change. And so two things I think were pretty important in the history of pressing would be the implementation of the substitution rule that obviously being able to sub on players who are fresh allows you to run longer and and have fresh legs who can do more. Uh, and then the uh, implementation of the back pass law and getting rid of the like, uh oh, I'm under pressure. I'm going to hit a ball 60 yards back in the air that my goalkeeper can catch and then keep control of. That is way easier, but when you have to hit that ball back and the goalkeeper can no longer use their hands, it becomes much harder. And so I think you'll get the sort of history repeating itself, but there will be changes in the way the game is understood and coached, but then also the rules themselves that I think will facilitate more pressing or be in response to everybody pressing. And we want more possession, so now... I don't know. We want more possession half the field. So now you have to have like an inbound rule where you've got to get the ball past midfield in 10 seconds or something ridiculous. And I could see rules having an impact on the way pressing is utilized in the future. Wonderful stuff. We'll leave it up to Arsene Wenger to change those rules for us hmm. then, Taylor. Um, <laughs> Perfect. One, one, I'll leave you with one fun nugget. You mentioned Taylor heavy metal football, which is kind of what Jurgen Klopp's game has been referred to as in the past. Liverpool have a banner they sometimes display at Anfield with Jurgen Klopp playing a guitar and it says heavy metal football. It's black and red. I designed that. I don't know if you've ever... What? Known, I've never told you that. Um, it was something I did at Bleach Report for a, like a, for a tweet. Uh, it's the exact one that they have taken for that banner. It is uh, Metallica's James Hetfield with Jurgen Klopp's head on it and they That's still epic. use it. <laughs> did, cool, you, right? did you do like the artwork for it? Yeah, a bleach report, yeah. I didn't I didn't know Ryan had these skills. I got we got to put these to more use. Oh, <laughs> you 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 uh you don't remember me from my blogging days when I was photoshopping all day long, Tay Tay. Oh boy. All right, I got to go find some photoshop work from Ryan Bailey. <laughs> On that bombshell, why don't we say goodbye to the listener Taylor Rockwell, thank you so much for this one. Right back at you, buddy. Joe Lowry, a pleasure all as always. Oh, thank you, sir. And Graham Rutherford, you weren't the cabbage head you promised you'd be. <laughs> I hope not. Thanks, Ryan. <laughs> Thank you, listener. Bye! Bye!